With the smoke now having cleared from our national elections, we now have a chance to step back for critical reflection on the role of religion and how religion is talked about in our national political scene. We have a great panel of experts to address this topic. To help moderate today's discussion and bring us into this topic is a close friend and partner of the Institute, Joe Capizzi, Professor of Moral Theology and Executive Director of the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. Joe, thank you very much and take it away. Great, Michael, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here with you guys. Of course, it's been a privilege to work with you uh, through this virtual season. Um, and uh, you know, deep privilege as well to be associated with your final uh, programming of 2020. Uh, it, especially, I'm, I feel a little bit intimidated uh, helping you out on this subject. Rarely do I know as little as I feel like I do uh, in this case. And uh, we really have a great roster of speakers. Uh, I'm excited to bring these gentlemen on. So uh, gentlemen, please uh, unmute yourselves and uh, activate your videos. Tonight we're joined by Kenneth Woodward, Pete Weiner, and Bill McCready. I will introduce um, them one at a time. First, I'll introduce Ken, and then Ken uh, will give us his opening comments, and then I'll come back on and introduce Pete. He'll give us his opening comments, and then I'll do the same for Bill. Once that's done, I will ask uh, all the participants a couple of questions myself, uh, during which time I invite you as listeners to type your questions into the chat box. Um, and we will sort through those questions and give you guys plenty of time to engage. Uh, I will pose those questions once I'm done with my questions. So let's just dump, dive right into this. Uh, Kenneth Woodward is going to be well known to most of you listeners as uh, he's uh, been writing on religion for a long time. He was the Newsweek editor of the religion column from 1964 to 2002 when he retired. He is the author of multiple books, uh, including Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. In addition to that, in 2006, the University of Notre Dame gave the, uh, awarded Ken its Reverend Robert F. Griffin Award. So he's, he, few people know as much about this issue of the relationship of faith uh, and particular faiths to voting, uh, I'm really excited to hear Ken's comments. So Ken, please take it away. Well, thank you, thank you for that. Um, let me begin by saying how, how pleased and excited I am to be working with Pete and Bill. Uh, I've learned much from both of them already and I expect to learn more before this evening is over. The points I wanna make uh, this evening are three. Uh, first, I do not think that there is a something called the Catholic vote. As Tom Reese SJ has pointed out in recent presidential elections, Catholics split almost evenly between the two parties and almost always vote for the eventual, eventual winner of the popular vote. In short, knowing that a voter is Catholic does not by itself tell us anything uh, about how that person will vote. So unless the faith factor has predictive power we cannot speak of a Catholic vote. Second, uh, I believe that the, the same is true of the white evangelical vote. And I will give most of my attention this evening to this group, which happens to be the only one the media really pays much attention to. Third, polls, and particularly exit polls, distort the relationship between religion and American presidential politics, politics in general, by presuming that religion determines how religious Americans vote. 
when in fact, the relationship is the other way around. With regard to the Catholic vote, I will say, I'd only add this, unless a poll or survey uses some form of a religiosity filter to distinguish between active and lapsed Catholics, there is no reason to take religious self-identification at face value. A self-identifying Catholic who, let's say, has not been to church since confirmation cannot be presumed to be the sort whose vote is influenced, much less driven by Catholicism. The concept of a white evangelical vote presents us with a different, I think, different set of problems. As a category, evangelical or born again was invented by pollsters after the 1976 election uh, and done so for political reasons, namely as a way to account for the theologically conservative cast of white, mostly Southern Protestants who typically voted Republican, but supported Democrat Jimmy Carter. Most of them were independent, non-denominational fundamentalists who otherwise shunned party politics as profane, just as they separated themselves from Christians who were not born again, like themselves, and even from many who were. Carter won them over by signaling that he, like them, was a born again Christian. But when he turned out to be more liberal than they expected, especially on civil rights uh, issues, Conservative Republican operatives easily recruited fundamentalist pastors like Jerry, pastors like Jerry Falwell uh, to political activism and the religious right, as we called it then, was born. The genealogy of this term, the religious right, is worth examination because it shows how uh, these folks were politicized from outside their own ranks. Uh, maybe we can talk about that later. Historian Grant Wacker describes evangelicalism as a, quote, wide river with many tributaries flowing into it. Indeed, it is. But its very fluidity has so far defied all efforts to give terms like evangelical and born again, either sociological or theological definition. As an adjective, evangelical can describe a wide range of otherwise unconnected Christians from the Amish in Iowa to California Quakers, from Florida Pentecostals to West Coast Texas Baptists uh, to Northern Michigan Calvinists, not to mention thousands of self-identifying evangelicals who worship in mainline Protestant churches. And I suspect most of the people that go to say uh, Joel Osteen's megachurch, which like most megachurches, it's not uh, political because they want to stay mega in the numbers of people who come there. But I suspect that most people that go there, despite the, um, the unorthodox gospel that is preached there, would identify themselves as evangelicals. As a theological category, born again also suffers from definitional elasticity. For example, Corwin Schmidt and other political scientists have found that at least 20% of Christians who self-identify as born again uh, to pollsters are actually Roman Catholics. It would help, of course, if evangelical Christians and their churches had organizational ties or even an accepted understanding of what being an evangelical means. According to the Religious Congregations Membership Study, based on the 2010 census, there are more than uh, 191,000 quote, evangelical or conservative Protestant, end of quote, churches in the U.S. 
Among them, they support all sorts of media outlets, which is one big reason why the Republican Party um, uh, uh, covets their support. But no tensile strength social networks to give this entrepreneurial form of Christianity discernible cohesion. The most precise definition that I can give to white evangelical uh, Christianity is this, an imaginary community of mostly post-denominational Christians to which almost everyone who claims to be born again can be assigned. Uh, I don't mean that as derogatory, I mean it as, as descriptive. Um, if we can't define who white evangelicals are, neither can we know from exit and other polls why voters who identify as such choose one presidential candidate over another. To assume that religious uh, faith is the driving factor is to presume what needs to be demonstrated. There are, in fact, numerous reasons other than religion the better explain the so-called white evangelical vote. Demography and geography play a role. White evangelical voters skew older than most Democrats, and most of them live in red states or red districts in blue states. Another is habit. White evangelicals have been part of the Republican coalition for 10 straight presidential elections. Beginning with Ronald Reagan, they were allowed to say the prayers but not until Donald Trump came along with promises to change the federal judiciary did they help set the political table as well. Education is a key factor. White evangelicals are more likely than other white Christians to have terminated their schooling with a high school diploma. That in turn largely determines their social class and caste, just above African-Americans in many cases, and in felt competition with them. Recall, after Christianity Today magazine published an editorial critical of President Trump, Franklin Graham declared that the magazine and its editors were, quote, elite liberals, out of touch with evangelicals. In a sense, he was right. In terms of educational attainment, and in most every other respect, the editors and most of the readers of the magazine are indeed very different from the people Graham Jr. speaks to and speaks for. Related to edu education is economics. As I reported at the time in an essay for Commonweal Magazine, a third of white evangelicals earned less than $30,000 a year in 2016, at a time when the poverty uh, line started at $24,000 $250 a year for a couple with two children. And more than half, 57%, earned less than $50,000 a year. Like most blue collar workers, they hadn't seen a real pay, uh, wage increase since the 1970s. When Trump prom promised to make America great again, a large number of white working class voters, especially in Rust Belt states, heard more jobs, better pay. My conclusion then, as now, is that the category white evangelical vote is a, a, a synecdoche, I always have a problem with that, rather than a political category to be reckoned with on its own terms. Put another way, it is a misleading crutch that pollsters and journalists alike use as a shorthand term for a much more variegated political 
uh, phenomenon. So you might ask, what's wrong with that? Several things, but here are two. First, in my judgment, it obscures the real relationship between religion and American politics. As political scientist uh, Liliana Mason, among others, has shown, party identity has so completely absorbed our other identities, including religious, that, uh, quote, a single vote can now indicate a partisan preference, as well as his or her religion, race, ethnicity, gender, neighborhood, and favorite grocery store, end of quote. That is certainly true of Catholics, and it is true of other American Christians as well. Sad to say, partisan politics shapes American religion more than religion shapes American politics. Second, this polarization of American religion hurts white evangelicals more than any other religious type. Most of the people I know well have few, if any, white evangelical friends. What they do know about them is what they read in the newspapers or online or in books like The, the End of, the, of White Christian America, which build on a mix of questionable polling and anecdotal reporting to give us an unnuanced image of repulsive, racist, misogynistic Christian hypocrites. By way of conclusion, let me say that I, let me say it, that I don't agree with that. Some folks are. Uh, but, but this is the stereotype, um, and I think it's unfortunate. By way of conclusion, let me say that I believe that all of the preoccupation with categories like the Catholic vote and the white evangelical vote mask a more important reality, namely that Americans really aren't all that religious in the first place. And I think the evidence is there for all to see, and perhaps we can get into that discussion. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Ken. That was really uh, fantastic and has given us a lot of provocative uh, things to discuss. I'm now gonna move on to Pete Weiner. Um, Pete is the Vice President and Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy, Policy Center in Washington, DC. He's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and a contributing editor for the Atlantic Monthly. He's been in three presidential administrations, and he is also the author of many books and many columns. You can see his work um, online in you know, a variety of American newspapers and publications, and also he, he's a frequent commentator as well. So Pete, you're up. Great. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Joe, for moderating this, and uh, Michael for hosting it, and for the uh, Lumen Christi Institute um, for, uh, for hosting the, the, the event. Um, at a time in which a lot of institutions in American life um, are uh, suffering a hemorrhage of trust, it's nice to have institutes uh, like yours, um, which is a kind of model both intellectually and, um, and, and morally and, and spiritually and really grappling with, with questions. So uh, it's, it's an honor to be with all of, all of you. Um, in terms of the, my um, remarks and the topic that I'm going to cover, um, I'm going to devote most of my comments as well to the evangelical vote. Obviously, during the Q&A, we can get into the Catholic vote. I'm going to do so largely because the evangelical world is the world that I know the best. Um, I'm a person of the Christian faith, um, really began my journey at the end of high school and into college, and has spent most of my life um, within that 
that uh, that world. So it's the one that I that I do know know best, um, and uh, and I think that I can speak to the most. In terms of the question, is is there an evangelical uh, vote, uh, and does it help illuminate uh, or obscure? I, I'd say there is an evangelical vote. Uh, evangelicals uh, are voters, um, and there are broad trends that you can that you can discern from the evangelical vote, uh, but you need qualifiers and in caveats, many of which Ken um, made, and, and I think they, they, they were helpful one. So I think it, the term evangelical vote can tell you some things, uh, but not everything by, by any means. And I think it can both uh, illuminate and obscure. Um, just to begin on the, on the definitional side, I don't want to spend a huge amount of time, but there, there's no single gatekeeper who keeps track of American evangelicals. I think it was Ken was, was getting at so it's <clears throat> difficult in terms of, of the definitional purposes or even the numbers. Um, the Wheaton College Institute for the Study of Even, uh, American Evangelicals estimates that there are about 95 million evangelicals, which is roughly 30%, 29% of, of the population. The Pew Research Center estimates the number at about 80 five million uh, or about 25 percent. Um, these are self-described evangelicals. So in that broad sense, in terms of the, the definition, you're talking about a lot up to a quarter or more of, of the country. The sociologists and demographers uh, typically um, define American evangelicals as non-Catholic, non-mainline Christians who describe themselves as having uh, a born-again salvific experience. But even within that uh, that group, you've got Pentecostal Christians, as, and and Ken listed a lot of them. Amish Christians. Uh, it's 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 a wide group. You've got African Americans. You've got Latino uh, Christians. Um, most pollsters distinguish between the African American uh, Christianity and white evangelical uh, Christians, particularly because uh, the, the the black experience is so. So, uh, so different than the, uh, than the white experience. Um, in terms of the um, typical white evangelical um, vote, um, about uh, three quarters um, of white evangelicals have been voting for Republican uh, candidates in presidential elections for many decades um, now. Um, Hispanic evangelicals tend to vote for Republicans at a higher rate than um, other Hispanics, but at a lower rate than white evangelicals. And then African-American uh, vote for Republicans at a much lower um, rate than, uh, than any other group of evangelicals. Um, for most evangelicals, they would say that their faith influences their politics. There are a lot of different ways to measure that. Uh, one simple way uh, is the, a Pew study that says that 89% of white evangelicals believe the Bible should influence U.S. laws. Um, but the history of evangelicalism is, is complicated. Um, Ken mentioned Jerry Falwell Sr., who founded the Moral Majority in the late 1970s, and that was a dominant force within the uh, American politics for, uh, for, for many, many years. Um, but Falwell decided to stay out of politics during the civil rights um, struggle in the 1960s um, and only really got involved uh, in the late 70s for a variety of, of reasons, some policy driven, some not. There was Roe v. Wade, but also uh, issues of, of uh, uh, IRS 
the Bob Jones University, would they get tax exemption because they didn't allow interracial dating? That was an issue that was decided in the early 80s under Ronald Reagan, um, and they were denied that tax exempt status. There was the issue of forced busing. So there were a number of issues that really pushed evangelicals into American politics. I mean, if you go back to the early part of the 20th century, you had the Scopes Monkey trial and the results of that, uh, which was something of an embarrassment to a lot of evangelicals and that caused them to pull back and withdraw. Then you had what many people consider to be a kind of heyday of the evangelical movement in the 1950s when you had a lot of institutions like Christianity Today, colleges, Christian colleges and university rise up, uh, Billy Graham became a central central figure. So the evangelical experience and the way it related to politics was very different in the middle part of the 20th century up until the late 70s and early 80s. And then they became much more politically involved and much more partisan. In that period, I think you can think of from really Jerry Falwell Sr. to Jerry Falwell Jr., who before he resigned a few months ago was president of one of the largest Christian universities in the world, Liberty University. Um, and uh, so if you talk to most evangelicals and the ones that I have, they would they would say that that faith really does propel their involvement in in American politics. And I think most of them say that in 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 good faith. Um, but I would also say uh, that people's perception that their faith uh, informs their politics is overstated. And I would say that, um, and I think social scientists are beginning to, to uh, validate this finding too, that politics shapes faith at least as much. I would probably say more than um, faith shapes uh, politics these days. Um, that is something that I uh, regret and I'm, I'm happy to get into that during the, during the Q&A. But I would say even for uh, people who consider themselves followers of Jesus, Christians, that the prism through which they often view faith is politics uh, rather than the the uh, the other way um, around. I think that there's been quite a cost to the Christian um, faith because of uh, because of that. Just on the Trump uh, years and the Trump presidency, um, a few patterns that have uh, emerged among white evangelicals in 2016. Many of you will know, but 81% um, of self-described white evangelicals cast a vote for Trump in 20. 20, the number was somewhat lower, depending on whether you listen to or um, trust the uh, the Emerson poll or the AP voter cast poll. Um, but the Emerson, the Edison poll, which which I think is is, is trusted by more sources, would say that it's about 76% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. Um, there it gets complicated as well because there's the question of how many people voted for Trump in spite of who he was versus because of who he was, how many of those white evangelicals voted for the presidency and the platform versus Donald Trump, the person. And that too is a complicated issue that, that one has to tease, uh, tease out. Uh, the short answer is that there were some of both that, that went on. And some pollsters are increasingly distinguishing between the conviction of the elite evangelical leaders. Um, Ken quoted Franklin Graham, who, who said that Christianity today, because of their editorial criticizing Donald Trump in the context of the impeachment and his outreach to Ukraine to interfere in the 2020 election. Franklin Graham referred to them as, as elite liberals. Um, 
Christianity Today wouldn't refer to themselves that way, neither would World Vision or the ERLC or the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, but they are elite, um, I, I would say. And there is a distinction between them uh, and, and the non-elites, the more populist uh, evangelicals um, who share Donald Trump's views on a number of, of issues, uh, including immigration and a sense of Christian nationalism, but it's hardly uh, confined to, uh, to that. And then I think there is the question of um, a, def a definitional question of America's cultural evangelicals. And I think we just need more work done in that, in that area. But those are people I, I would say who are um, attend church often occasionally, but they maintain a kind of cultural allegiance to the more tribalistic uh, elements of white evangelical Christians. Um, and so we have to, we have to, uh, we have to tease that out as, as uh, well. Um, you know, white evangelicals, if you, if you listen to them these days, and again, we can go into this during the Q and A, um, there's a striking shift in their attitudes and views of the country and their own place in the country. So if 40 years ago at the dawn of the Reagan era, they considered themselves a moral majority today, many of them consider themselves a moral minority and not only a moral minority, but there is the language of persecution um, and a, a sense of almost an existential threat and existential fear about the direction of the culture and what will happen if Democrats win uh, the presidency or, or, or uh, get control of the, of the Supreme Court uh, combined with, with, with the control of what they, they perceive as the control of, of liberals and progressives with our cultural institutions. So the attitude and the mindset of a lot of white evangelicals is a sense of fear. Um, and, uh, and I think that that is a problem from a scriptural perspective. Um, one of the most common injunctions in the Bible is fear not and be not afraid. I think a lot of Christians are afraid. That doesn't mean that there aren't reasons to be concerned or that there aren't threats that need to be faced, though I would say in the history, long history of Christianity, there have been few periods and few countries in which it's been better to be a Christian than to be a Christian in America in, in 20, uh, 2020. One only has to be familiar with church history to know what real persecution looks like uh, versus the faux kind that, that, uh, that we sometimes uh, here. So there is a lot of fear and fear as a general matter um, catalyzes a lot of emotions, including some negative ones, um, and can cause uh, movements and in individuals to act in ways that they would otherwise not act. And sometimes to act in ways that I think that they might, might, uh, might come to, to, to regret. Final point is, you know, evangelical Christians, however you define them, are a force in American politics. They're probably the single most important force and factor in the Republican Party. Donald Trump certainly understood that, which is why his presidency was aimed so often at them and at energizing them. And the Republican Party um, is, if not the dominant party in America right now, certainly right near it. So American evangelicals have, have a lot of influence. And to see what will happen as Trump exits the stage and to see what this next chapter is will be a fascinating one for them and, um, and for all of us. Great, thank you very much, Pete. <clears throat> that was great stuff. 
Bill McCready is our final uh, speaker. Uh, Bill is a visiting scholar at the University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research. He has a PhD in sociology from the University of Illinois, Chicago, and an MA from uh, the University of Chicago. He was a senior fellow of the Ministry Leadership Center, whose mission is to form leaders and to sustain the deep, sustain and deepen the ministry of healing in the Catholic tradition. He's worked in the survey research field for more than 50 years and as the program director of the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. So please welcome uh, Bill McCready, who will um, give our final comments. Well, thanks very much, uh, Joe, and thanks very much to Lumen Christie for this panel and for inviting all of us to this. Um, it's a very interesting group. Uh, as much has been talked about, um, about Catholic vote, evangelical vote, I'll talk a little bit about measuring the vote and about polling a little bit, try not to put everybody to sleep with that. Um, but um, quote one thing from uh, Republican pollster Stephen Wagner, who once said that Catholics were the most maddening electoral group in American politics. And um, the reason is, and I think increasingly listening to Peter, whom I don't know very well, but I plan on getting to know, um, I think the same probably could be said of evangelicals. And I think that when we start to try to think of a black vote, uh, we run into the divergencies within all of these groups. And there's a lot of divergence. There hasn't really been a Catholic vote since 1960, since John Kennedy. That was the, that was the last time we saw 80% uh, or so of Catholics going in one direction. Uh, a couple of points, though, uh, about polling particularly. A lot of it has been made recently about 2016 and now about 2020 about the exit polls. Um, there's two primary exit polls, uh, Edison, uh, which is the one that uh, Pete mentioned, and VoteCast, which is done by uh, AP and NORC, who I used to work for, so there's some disclaimer there. They're very different. Uh, Edison actually is the old-fashioned kind of exit poll that interviews you when you come out of the uh, out of the voting booth or talks to you right afterwards and tries to find out who you voted for. Uh, Ken has pointed out one of the problems with that and that if they have a hard time asking why you voted for that person, then there just isn't enough time. Um, VoteCast is done with about 140,000 people and is a mixed mode. It's done on the telephone, it's done on the internet, it's a random sample, it's a pretty good sample and it's gotten pretty good track record. But it is also asking before and after so it gets, a, it gets a measure of change. And those polls came in pretty close. The difficulty that I think people who don't understand statistics have is that in these close elections, polling is, uh, is not very helpful in a way because it's always going to be, the election is always going to be within the mountain of error. So for example, in this last 2020 election, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which were key in the electoral college, uh, went for Biden by a total of one and a half percent. There's not a poll in history that's going to pick that up. Um, it is true that, uh, in, for example, Catholics voted a little bit more likely um, for Biden this time, and evangelicals pulled away a little bit from Trump by two or three percent in most cases. It was enough to tip some of these states, if you're looking at a tipping point, there are other ones too. There are, there's the Hispanic vote, the black vote, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're talking about is measuring something that is pretty small and trying to get a handle on it. And that's very hard to do. Uh, the second point I'd make is all these uh, election polls are based on what's called a likely voter model. And that means that unlike most survey research, they're trying to predict what somebody will do. 
not asking them what they have done. They're trying to base that on what they know about what they have done in the past. But nonetheless, it's a likely voter model, which means I'm going to estimate whether you're going to vote or not. And in a pandemic, that becomes kind of a disastrous melange. I mean, it's really hard to figure that one out, especially when you've got a pretty strong party difference between mail-in voting and non-mail-in voting. Uh, the Republican administration was telling people, don't vote mail-in, it's not trustworthy, blah, blah, blah. Uh, save yourself uh, for the voting day. Uh, Democrats were saying, no, get out there and vote early, vote early. Now, they did not say, as we used to say in Chicago, vote early and often. Uh, they, this time they held it down just to vote early, uh, which is uh, nicely staying within the law. Uh, but it made the exit polling very hard because uh, a great deal of the Democratic vote and it was done in before and was, was mailed in before and was counted differently. It's counted a little bit later. So it's going to change. And we're probably not seeing the end of this. I think we're going to see early voting and mail-in voting as um, a, one of the major modalities from now on. I think we're going to see a lot of people doing that. Um, a third point that I mentioned about evangelical, I hadn't thought about this about evangelicals. I was thinking more about it about Catholics. But in terms of what they're interested in and what they think they're going to get out of an election, um, something I think we haven't talked a great deal about, although Ken sort of mentioned it, was judges. Um, they want judges. I mean, to a certain extent, that's how you preserve, if you will, your moral values in society. You can go to the courts and the courts are going to support that. So I think many Catholics were very happy about the number of Catholics on the Supreme Court. Trump, I think, has supported, has appointed three. Um, there are now six. It's a majority of Catholic on the Supreme Court. It doesn't mean that they're going to vote religion, but it certainly is an interesting phenomenon because for many, many tens and tens of years, the Supreme Court was the, uh, the preview of primarily uh, white Protestants. However, there's another factor that goes into looking at who's on the Supreme Court besides religion, and that is they're all from Yale or Harvard. Um, there's virtually nobody else in there. So this is, a, American politics is changing and is becoming interesting as to what levers people are trying to, to push. And I think that courts and judges are one that uh, some of the religious uh, groups are trying to see as more aligned, they're more trustworthy uh, for their benefit than they are, than legislators are in many cases. Um, I mentioned before that um, this was the last, the last time we had a real Catholic vote was 1960. I think in general, and this election was no exception, Catholics have split almost down the middle. I think this time it was 47, 52 or something. Um, it was probably less than that, but it's very close. And the reason is because even though Catholics are not set up this way, behaviorally and theologically, you could separate them into Orthodox, Conservative and Reform if you wanted to. And it's likely that that would be a useful thing to do in terms of understanding how they vote. We haven't done it yet, really, but I'm suggesting that might be something to look at. Um, finally, I think that um, the thing that uh, puzzles me in a way about how we think about Americans voting is that we, we talk about a Catholic vote. Well, as kind of uh, earlier mentioned, all not all, but Catholics vote and evangelicals vote. So there's clearly a Catholic vote, an evangelical vote, a black vote, et cetera. 
to the extent they cluster up is a matter of issues. And it's a matter of how the issues are seen in their lives. And that takes a lot more um, investigative work and a lot more asking the question that I think Ken raised early on is why people vote a certain way. And we just don't have a good handle on much of that. I think that's what was uh, suggesting to um, uh, Wagner that uh, Catholics were maddeningly difficult to predict. And the reason is because there's a lot of mixed issues going on here from economics to race, to uh, religion, uh, to morals. We are into a new era of um, segmentation, I think, in society. And the internet and the social media has only made that more uh, virulent, I think, more hard, more difficult to understand. Um, somebody said somebody, I think uh, Peter said now that, uh, how will it be that Trump is, is exiting? Well, I don't think he's gonna exit. Uh, I think this guy's gonna stick around. I think this is gonna be a new show. Um, I think he's got his teeth in, uh, where the money is, and uh, there's a lot of contributions coming in uh, to the tune of 200, $250 million so far. Uh, boy, I wouldn't give that up. Uh, that, that's a, it's a pretty good deal. And I, so I think we're seeing a change in American politics uh, that we'll be talking about for a long time. But I do think these questions of group voting, particularly of the general role of religion and religious values as to how they intersect with people's choices and with American politics in general, are just uh, both fascinating to talk about, but incredibly important for the next 10, 15 years of this country's history. So thank you. Great, thank you very much, Bill. Um, right on time, by the way, guys, we're totally on time, excellent job. There's so much on the table and, you know, I, in a way, I think I'm probably representative a listener, maybe even um, in some ways, you know, more ignorant than our representative uh, listeners might be. I want to start um, where it won't surprise you, a theologian, you know, might want to start. And that is a claim that Ken, you and Pete both made, um, and you both seem to express some regret about it. And that is the idea that politics shapes faith at least as much as, or perhaps even more than faith shapes politics. And, and I want to ask, um, in part because it seems deeply connected to the notion of a predictive vote um, based on faith, why you guys perceive that as a problem? Um, you know, uh, and if I might suggest, you know, a reason why we might not, right? It seems to posit a disintegration of politics and faith, right? A kind of, here's faith over here and there's politics. And then the, the faithful person now enters and brings his or her faith into the political arena and begins to sort through politics, right? Rather than sort of seeing them perhaps as integrated things, right? And, and the more fundamental question from a faith perspective is not, am I gonna vote Republican or Democrat based on this or that policy, but how am I going to, I think this is a, a phrase you use, Pete, be propelled into the political arena, right? So you can imagine, right, as a, an extreme, Mennonites for whom right life is integrated in a particular way will find themselves not propelled into the political arena in the same way Catholics or at least recently evangelicals might be propelled even while their you know their, their particular you know understanding of how that propelling will sort of spell itself out 
might differ wildly, right? So somebody might support Biden enthusiastically as a Catholic or evangelical and might, and, and his neighbor, you know, or his fellow congregant might support the other guy equally. Do, do you understand the, the question? Um, Kenneth, can you take the, Ken, can you take the first swing at that? And then uh, we'll, we'll work through um, Pete and perhaps Bill too. All right, let me, yeah, let me, let me take a big swing at it. Um, Please do. I have, um, I have lately been quoting um, uh, political scientist John Green, who together with some other evangelicals created a very sophisticated filtration system for figuring out um, uh, things like why you don't lump all Presbyterians together because um, Southern Presbyterians typically are different from Northern Presbyterians, for example. Uh, and he, ha they would start out with the least religious people and whatever they ended up at the other end were the most religious. And, and these were not Mother Teresa's we're talking about here. We're talking about people who, as I like to put it, uh, place religion somewhere near the center of their lives, okay? He figures that's about 17%, which I pointed out uh, slightly tongue in cheek at one point that, uh, you know, that's about the number of people who were churched uh, at the founding of the, of, um, of, of the nation. Um, these are the people who are likely to make connections between. It's, it's, I would say this to Peter, um, it's, I'm sure a lot of religious people think that they're bringing their faith into the polling booth, but I, what happens after that? Um, the segmentation that, um, uh, I think the segmentation takes place that Bill was talking about. Um, there are certain issues, but even an issue like abortion, which most people think are, is a religious issue, I don't. I think it's a moral issue against another moral issue, which is the freedom and the right to choose. So it's a human rights issue, one saying open up the rights to the unborn, the other one saying women have these rights, let's support them. Um, I see that as a moral issue, but it might come because I group together with other people, say in a church, who agree. And I wouldn't go to a church maybe that, that, that disagreed but I also might belong to, on the other side, I might belong to a, you know, a, uh, what can we call it, a feminist study group. And that's my, that's the group that influences me. So um, uh, what I'm saying is, yes, I don't think we're all that religious and, and that it takes quite a bit of thought and reflection to make connections uh, between these and particular individuals and particular issues. And I don't think most Americans, although they may consider themselves religious, um, actually vote that way. Thank you, Pete. Yeah, it's a great question, Joe. Uh, and, and I will, um, uh, let me take, take my swing at it. I did want to make one clarification from what Bill said when, when I said that Donald Trump would exit the stage. I'm not sure if I was precise enough. I may have been or not, but what I meant was he's going to exit the presidency. <laughs> I don't think he's going to exit politics. And I certainly don't think he's going to go gently into the good night. So he's certainly going to continue to be a force in, in American politics, but not being president matters uh, too. Um, in terms of the, of the question, uh, I, I really do like it. So let me, let me try and distinguish here because I think to some extent, Joe, it depends on how one understands or wants to define politics in the high or the low sense. I would say in the high sense, I very much agree with you. There shouldn't be a disintegration 
between faith and politics. I wrote a book called The Death of Politics, How to Heal a Afraid Republic After Trump. It's really a defense of politics in, in, in the sense of the Aristotelian sense. And um, my own view is that one should not be cynical about or indifferent to politics because politics is finally and fundamentally about justice. That's not all that it's about, but it is about that as well. And justice always matters. And whether one is supportive of a just or unjust regime has enormous human consequences. And, you know, people from Kuiper and Sphere of Sovereignty spoke about, about, uh, about that. And you had, of course, Augustine with the, with the Ordo Amorum, the Order of the Loves, City of Man, City of God. So um, I, I would not argue as a person of the Christian faith, this is my own theological interpretation, that they ever should be pried apart. I think they're, they're, uh, they overlap, but they're also quite, quite, quite distinct. Jesus was not a political figure in any conventional sense, neither were his disciples. He didn't lead, lead a political movement. But again, I think justice matters. What I had in mind was what I guess I would uh, refer to as a kind of partisan politics or tribalistic politics. And what I mean by that is that when morality um, and justice take a secondary role to the political tribe that you are a part of, that is a problem. And I think that a lot of Christians are blind to how tribalistic they are. But I will give you one illustration of the kind of thing I had in mind, which is if you go back to ancient history, the late 1990s, and you listen to a lot of white evangelicals, Southern Baptists and many others, Franklin Graham would be one example, Eric Metaxas would be another, Robert Jeffers would be a third, Ralph Reed would be a fourth, James Dobson would be a fifth. I could go on and on. And you, you listen to what they said about morality and political leadership and William Jefferson Clinton, you would have heard them take a jackhammer, a, a moral two by four upside the head against Clinton on a day by day basis because of the Lewinsky scandal. And back then their argument was that morality is central to political leadership and you shouldn't compartmentalize policies uh, from, from moral leadership. And Clinton was a disgrace and he ought to resign. Now fast forward to 2016, 20 through 2020, and Donald Trump. All of a sudden, those issues that were once front and center to to evangelical white evangelical Christians, and I think that they believed it at the time, got set to the to the side. So you see it in somebody like Al Mohler, who said in 2016 he couldn't vote for. Donald Trump under any circumstances, and if he did, he'd have to write a, a, a note of apology to Bill Clinton. Well, he declared in 2020 he was going to vote for Trump, and there's been no apology. What you saw was that morality as an issue, morality as a central part of political leadership, turned out not to be the issue, it turned out to be a, an instrumentality. It turned out to be a board that they could pick up, a weapon they could pick up and use against a liberal Democrat when it was convenient. But when that metric mattered for a Republican, they decided that really isn't really what we have to care about. We have to care about judges. We have to care about other, other issues. Now, that double standard, that hypocrisy is to me pretty transparent. And I've had a lot of conversations and read a lot about it. And I have yet to hear somebody give the explanation other than this guy was the head of our tribe. Um, and so we have to support him. But when, it, when the uh, head of the other tribe is a liberal Democrat and morality is convenient to use, we'll use it. And when that happens, 
that is wrong. And I think it's a hugely discrediting thing to the Christian witness and the Christian faith. Yeah, that, Thank reminds you. Me, that reminds me of what was uh, Franklin Roosevelt said of uh, who was it in um, in uh, Nicaragua, the, the family that ran it for so many years. He's an SOB, but he's our SOB. Um, that's the, yeah, the, uh, that uh, Somoza, yes, that's an illustration. It seems to me that politics has as as drama, as central story, as as threat and 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 hope. Um, has swallowed up um, religion for an awful lot of people. It's here and now, it ain't about later on. Um, and that, it's the absorption of the passion that you might expect um, uh, and the commitment that you might expect in religion uh, absorbed by politics that concerns me. Bill, do you want in? Uh, just a, a, an additional point on something Pete said, um, that, and Ken just followed up on that. Uh, morality, religion, and politics are three really funny terms. Um, they encompass a lot. And the one that's been floating around a lot um, has been moral conviction. Uh, people that have moral convictions uh, suspend everything else. And if the, if the action of a judge or if the action of a candidate offends my moral conviction, something I'm really convicted about, I'm going to act in a certain way. I think that's where the passion comes from that Ken talked about. Now, the extent to which that's getting into politics, it seems to me, is uh, increasing. I think we're seeing more of that rather than less. Uh, and it's going to be in, uh, for a while, it's going to be a destabilizing kind of uh, activity. We'll have to just kind of watch and see where it goes. But I, uh, I noticed, especially a couple of the uses of the word tribalism, uh, there's an article out now about political secularization. I think that's where we're headed in terms of trying to understand how this stuff works. Political you know, sectarianism, right? I'm sorry? Political sectarianism? Yeah, right. Yeah. Bill, while your microphone is warm, let me, um, let me ask uh, the next question <clears throat> to you. You mentioned that the last time there was a Catholic vote was like, was a, you know, 1960, uh, the support for Kennedy. Um, and, and one question that I wondered about was whether the notion of any sort of block religious vote is really just a false notion in the first place. It seemed to some extent Ken may have been suggesting that, but I mean, has there been like consistently either an evangelical or a Catholic vote through time? And we've, we've just seen that diminish over time or was, was it never really quite as you know much a block as um, uh, as uh, perhaps uh, media has presented? I think both Pete and, and Ken mentioned the role of media in this. Yeah, I think that um, to some extent that's true. Media likes a shorthand. Uh, it's useful. It needs it needs shorthand. It can't explain everything. Right. I think the block voting stuff really started in um, in this country uh, and the first big wave of immigration after the twenties and thirties. Uh, when the immigrants started voting uh, Democratic in the cities, particularly, and overwhelming um, other votes. I mean, people now say, well, the Electoral College uh, needs to be reformed. Well, you know, the designers of the Constitution were pretty smart, actually. They said, you know, we're going to try to run a balance between mob rule and the vote of the elites. And so uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have this very complicated kind of situation. And I think most of the History, history, I think, was the formation of block voting. It was people looking at the history of the immigrants saying, where did they go? The overwhelming movement from uh, Republicans to Democrats in the uh, Depression, World War II period. 
And then it kind of lingered on after that. That's where block voting started. Whether it's useful today is, I think, very difficult to measure because my sense is it's going to be more unstable. And I think that because of all the measures we've talked about, um, group identity is more unstable than it used to be. And so we're going to probably see people looking for block voting, but I don't think it's going to be as, as active and as permanent as maybe it once was. Just a quick follow-up before maybe Ken or Pete jumps in on this. Um, is it not possible, though, that even in the, you know, the, in the, what it looked like, block religious voting of immigrants and so on was as explicable or maybe more explicable in terms of the kinds of things that Ken mentioned earlier that are, that are, you know, are proving more predictive? You mentioned geography, age, right. education, economic status. And, I mean, many of those immigrants shared all of those things as well, right? Yeah. No, no, no one ever accused the great immigrant immigration of particularly Southern and uh, Eastern Europe into this country as being theologically sophisticated. I mean, <laughs> right. that, is, right. that is not the group we're talking about. Right. So it, that's exactly right. This is not a theological revolution of any kind. As a matter of fact, most folks don't even know what that is, as Peter can, I'm sure, attest to. Um, I taught in the seminary for a long time, and it was hard to figure that out sometimes. It is economics, it's behavior, it's your friendship groups, it's where you think you're going to lose. <clears throat> and I think Pete put his finger on something about fear. I think a lot of, not just evangelicals, but I think a lot of white people in this country think they're going to lose something by certain kinds of changes that are going on. And they're right. They're going to lose majorities. That's what's happening. Uh, so we're, we're, that's demographics. That's a whole other question. But yeah, I think that's exactly right. Great. Thank you. Um, Peter, Ken, you guys want in on this one? I want to mention, uh, uh, I am sure if in the 50s, if you went up to Milwaukee, uh, which was pretty much divided between the, uh, the Lutherans and the Catholics, that the Polish Catholics voted one way and the Lutheran Germans voted another, in part because of the way the Polish voted. I know that the um, former um, Archbishop of the Greek Orthodox Church, North and South America, mind you, um, was, he was from Boston and he, he said, you know, the reason I vote Republican because all the Irish vote Democrat. So uh, the, the connection between ethnicity and therefore neighborhood, uh, places you didn't, a lot of people never left, that's religion connected with geography and, and um, ethnicity uh, really made a difference. And those, that's when you had blocks, especially at the local level. That's gone, of course. Great, thank you. I don't, I don't have anything to add, thanks. Okay, super. Let's go to um, the questions from uh, the people who are watching us and have joined us tonight. And again, thank you guys for your questions. Please just type them into the Q&A box um, when you get a chance. So first is a couple of questions about the American Solidarity Party. Um, two listeners, two people who have joined us tonight have noticed that that party, you know, although very, very small, still appears to be growing. Um, the questions are asking more or less, do you, can you guys speak to what you think might be the uh, growth prospects of American solidarity? Do you see that becoming a viable party? I don't I think know. American solidarity, th well, I think, it's, I think it's a small party and I think it's growing at about the same rate as libertarians are. Um, and so I kind of, you know, statistically, I, I look at those two things as being somewhat similar. Uh, they're, 
they're, they're interesting voices. I think they always have a uh, point to make, but they're not very big. I, I would just say as a general matter, not on American solidarity per se, but on, on the parties more broadly, this is a country which has a long and deep tradition of two parties, the Republican and the Democratic Party. Um, and I just don't see that changing anytime soon. I understand the arguments. You've, you've had them for many years now. The most, I guess, uh, plausible um, third party candidacy in modern American politics was Ross Perot in 1992. He won 19% of the vote and got exactly zero electoral votes. And since then, you've had other people make various runs at this because the understanding, the, 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 the impulse here, the analytical impulse here is that there are a lot of people who are unhappy with the two parties, particularly since the, the uh, both parties have become more polarized over the last several decades for a lot of complicated reasons that, that are referred to as the big sort. And so the feeling is there's got to be some kind of opening for a, a, a more moderate party, moderates of both sides. That makes sense on paper. In reality, it just does not seem to happen. Um, and so for well or ill, this, this is a country that has a deep, deep attachment to the Republican and the Democratic Party. That doesn't mean that other parties aren't important. Obviously, Ralph Nader was an important figure in the 2000 election, may well have swung it for George W. Bush as opposed to, to Al Gore. But I just don't see in the short term any any rivals to the Republican or Democratic Party. It doesn't mean that um, clearly no. people shouldn't weigh in if they, they they feel it or they 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 have every right to build it up. I just don't think it's going to swing things. I think that's exactly right. I don't think it's going to be a matter of uh, moving the two party system. However, what has happened historically, and I see this happening with libertarians and socialist parties in the past and the American Solidarity Party, is their issues get into the mainstream. And so that's the way they have of affecting what goes on in American politics. And you'd be surprised if we look back on you know, the issues that we now talk about, they were, sometimes they were very fringe issues and now they're mainstream. And I think we're gonna see more of that. Great, great comments. Okay, another question. Pete, this is direct, directed uh, to you. Um, uh, this uh, questioner asks, you mentioned that evangelicals have fears and uh, she's asking what fears, uh, or fears about what cultural issues in particular and are you able to tell us more about these fears and their basis? Sure. And in, in, in my experience and from what I can tell from, from, from the data, um, I'll give you a couple of, of areas. I, I think they tend to be cultural fears. I would say among a lot of white evangelicals, there is the fear of the cancel culture, woke culture on the left um, and the intersection of Christian institutions and sexual ethics. Um, so if you wanted to have a simple understanding of it is, will Wheaton College or Calvin University become Bob Jones University? Will there be a point at where we reach where, where if um, Christian institutions don't teach a kind of sexual ethics that is more broadly accepted in the culture, will their tax exempt status uh, be, be, be denied them? Um, and there have been uh, Michael Lindsay uh, up at Gordon College uh, several years ago was was involved in a in in, in an effort to lose the, uh, there was an effort to try and deny them accreditation. There were efforts in California several years ago to shut down InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, on, on these. Okay, great, great. Um, 
Another question from uh, Pete Steinfels. Uh, so you guys can uh, brace yourselves for this question. Is the notion of Christian nationalism one that is useful as an explanation? Uh, who wants to take a swing at that? Um, Ken, you want to take a shot at that? Is the notion of Christian nationalism one that is useful as an explanation? Is that a useful sociological category? Well, a, a partial explanation, uh, and it, it piggybacks on what uh, we've just discussed. Um, the notion is it once was a Christian nation. I think that's exaggerated, but you can argue it either way. Um, Depends upon how serious you take the Diaz, for example. But in any case, uh, but it's not anymore. Um, now we've got Muslims among us. We've got Sikhs. We have all these other people. Um, but also it goes, I think the, the, the strongest expression of it is what Pete said. It's cultural. Um, they would say when I was growing up, there was no notion that uh, that. Uh, you would have abortion on demand or that you would have same-sex marriage, all these changes that take place. And uh, those categories are just not moral. They're also like, this is the opposite of what we once knew as you might add a Christian nation. And now it isn't anymore. So um, I don't think a Christianist, na Christian nationalist movement is uh, I think that's, you know, um, small potatoes compared to the connection that, that can be made between uh, this sense of we're no longer a Christian nation as we understand that, the connection between that and the cultural issues. Yeah, I'll just say very, very quickly, I, I think it is a very relevant um, topic and, and, and category. There are a lot of Christians that embrace the idea of Christian nationalism. It manifests itself in, in different ways. I mean, some people believe that America today is the equivalent of ancient Israel, the, the, the New Testament version of what Israel was in, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures. I don't share that, that theology. But it also, I think, intersects with issues of immigration and populism. And it is a sense that this is our country it is, it, it is, if it's not a Christian country, it should be. And it has an impulse of drawbridge up. Uh, and you see it in, in, in terms of attitudes toward immigrants and even refugees. The group that was the most hostile to taking in refugees, Syrian refugees, was stunningly, in my estimation, evangelical Christians. It was atheists who were most open to it. And uh, the idea that Christians would 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 say no and turn 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 their their eyes and their attention away from the dispossessed and, and people like Syrian refugees uh, and allow them to come in to me was was one example and a troubling example of how this Christian nationalism impulse mindset mentality is uh, is warping the the theology. Many of them, of course, were Christians, the Syrians who were refugees, right? Yeah. Bill, did you want to say anything on, the, on that question? No, I just, I think that's pretty well covered. I think that the, uh, the Christian nationalism issue, however, will be a, uh, a popular tag. Um, I think we'll see people use it in um, a competitive, politically competitive kinds of ways. Great. The next question uh, um, is from an attendee who wonders about a potential difference between evangelical Christianity and Catholicism, insofar as Catholicism has central institutions that various partisans recognize as authoritative. 
is there more of an opportunity, um, this attendee asks, to mitigate the effects of this sorting within Catholicism? Is there more of an opportunity to mitigate the effects of this sorting within Catholicism because of that authoritative uh, institution? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. go quickly. I mean, my, my instinct is that yes, because of the authoritative structure of the Catholic Church, um, I think that Ken in his opening remarks refer to the entrepreneurialism of evangelicalism. Right. And I think that has advantages and disadvantages, but there simply is not a kind of hierarchy. You obviously don't have the capacity to, to uh, publish encyclicals. You don't, have a, you don't have a pope. So I think the institutional um, infrastructure doesn't exist among evangelicals. And that's why you see so many evangelicals are all all over the map. And the last thing I'll say on this front is I do think that Catholic social thought as a general matter is much more richly developed than what you see within the evangelical world, um, because I think that Catholicism allows for that in a way that, that evangelicalism, that not that evangelicalism doesn't allow for that. I just think it, it makes it somewhat more more difficult. Ken or uh, Bill? Well, you had you had uh, Richard John Newhouse um, very adroitly um, uh, made extraordinary efforts to bring in uh, like-minded, like-concerned uh, evangelicals, uh, even after a while Mormons, and even as you see now in First Things, uh, Orthodox Jews, um, where we uh, he would say where we agree on things, uh, we should form a front. And, and I think he, uh, at least as long as he was alive, was successful in, um, in doing that. Um, and I think, you know, we had, uh, I forgot whose book it was years ago, the liberal conservative divide cut um, uh, across um, denominations, if you will, and religious traditions. Um, so that conservatives of one group can identify more readily with uh, conservatives of a different uh, uh, religious background and vice versa. Yeah, I think it's interesting that we see uh, evangelicals sometimes look at the uh, Catholic religion and say, uh, oh boy, wow, it'd be nice to have a hierarchy. And the Catholics look at the evangelicals and say, wow, it'd be nice to get rid of a hierarchy. I wish we didn't have them. It goes both ways. Um, uh, religiously, uh, I don't think Catholics are as attentive to their own religious authorities as they used to be. I think that's changed. And I think that uh, that has happened partly because Catholics have, uh, uh, since the 1920s, 30s, have moved dramatically into higher education. They've moved into the professions like law and science and so on and so forth. And they've become, uh, uh, some people would say less religious. I think they've become more skeptical, uh, perhaps, rather than less religious. Great, thank you. Okay, uh, uh, here's a, another question from an anonymous uh, viewer. Are there indications that there are those who would have voted for Biden, but have not, did not do so because of his position on abortion? So any exit polling that indicates there may have been people who would have supported Biden, but for his view on abortion. Bill, do you, are you aware of any of that or um, anybody else? I've seen a little bit of it. Um, it's, uh, again, abortion is one of those issues that is uh, variegated within the Catholic community. Not everybody, especially when you ask about legalization, which is the issue, uh, that's uh, always gets a, a mixed response. 
But yes, I'm sure there have been some cases. I don't know of any data that says uh, it shifted the vote in a state um, and cost a state. I haven't seen that at all. Okay. Anyone else have any intel on that question? It's a good question. Well, I'm sure it took place. I mean, I know people that took place and certainly um, as a Catholic in my own mind, um, uh, Biden's position, uh, which he made even more extreme um, uh, in running for, um, for the Democratic nomination, uh, I know it gave pause to, to people. And uh, uh, what, what it did in terms of the vote, um, Bill's right. I, I haven't seen any data either. I just wanted to add one interesting empirical point, which is there's what Biden's stand is on abortion, and then there's the issue of the number of abortions. The, re the empirical reality is that if you look at the number of abortions under the Obama-Biden administration, it went down more su substantially than any other administration in modern history. Now, yeah. I'm not arguing cause and effect because abortion rates have been going down depending on which ones you look at since the 80s or early, early 90s, and they've gone down under Clinton, they went under, down under George W. Bush, they went under, down under Obama, and they've went, gone down to some extent during the Trump years as, 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 as well. I, I just think as a, as a moral matter, it gets complicated because I think you can, you can view it multiple ways. One is to say, look, I can't, if, if, as a person, of the, if you're of pro-life view, I can't in good conscience vote for somebody who doesn't believe in the sanctity of life. And that's, that's certainly a legitimate and morally serious position. That's still a different issue than whether voting for a person who is so-called so pro-choice leads to more abortions. And if the answer is no, that the actual abortions will continue to go down, um, then, then that puts it in a, uh, it's a different moral category. It doesn't make it not a moral, moral issue. Um, but I, I must say in my own conversations with, with, who, with people who are pro-life, they don't like that fact actually, it should bring celebration to their hearts because there are many fewer abortions with the lowest number of abortions since prior to Roe v. Wade. And yet I think that because they don't quite know how to process that data, uh, it, uh, it, they, they, want to, um, they want to avoid the, the complicating issues surrounding it. Um, yeah. On those, on those, those, where where do these numbers come from, if not from Guttmacher? I mean, does it include uh, pharmaceutically induced abortions at home? I don't know that we are able to count those. Yeah, the the, the data comes from Guttmacher and the CDC. So the the, the, the institutions and organizations that we've relied on for decades and decades for abortions. They all chart the same trend. They have slightly different numbers because Guttmacher includes, uh, I think, California, which which the CDC does does not. But there's no question that the trends have gone gone down um, in terms of how they define abortion. Uh, what uh, you know, one has to look into that. But there's just no question, at least in my mind, that the rate ratio and total number of abortions have gone down significantly for all sorts of complicated reasons. I think one of the big reasons is we've really reduced the rate of teenage pregnancy in the country. That's that's one of them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, these are obviously themselves, you know, deep and complicated issues. Uh, one final question, um, and I want to thank everybody who's been with us tonight. And this is just a question coming from me. And it was touched on just a couple of times. And Pete, I'm going to give it to you because I think you mentioned um, this uh, a couple of times. 
we, we didn't really talk at all about non-white evangelicals in particular, right? And, and I just wonder if any of, if you're seeing these same kinds of trends we've been discussing tonight emerging uh, you know, among either black um, evangelicals or you know, Hispanic evangelicals. Um, because, and and I, I just think we should at least give that a little bit of a hearing before we close. Yeah, it's, it, it is interesting. I mean, Trump, even in the Latino vote, you know, one has to distinguish what happened in Florida because there's a certain kind of Latino vote in Florida that's different than, than in other states. And you saw in parts of, of, of Texas, uh, you know, the, the traditional view was that Latino vote was heavily Catholic, which I think is still, still, still the case, but you do have evangelical Hispanics for sure. Um, and then the, the, black, uh, the black church um, has its own history, kind of remarkable history um, as, uh, as well. Um, but the numbers from what I have seen is that Trump did somewhat better with both Hispanics and uh, African-Americans in 2020 than he did in 2016 among evangelicals, self-described evangelicals within those groups. There, I'd have to check. Bill may know. I think he probably went up, went up some. But there's still a, a very large gap between white evangelicals and non-white evangelicals. Um, but if you took those three groups, which is white evangelicals, Hispanic, and African Americans, um, white evangelicals self-described overwhelmingly Republican and pro-Trump, Hispanics. Yeah. Complicated, more Biden than not, but 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 complicated. African Americans overwhelmingly Biden. Yeah, that seems to be the case. I mean, one of the things that we look at when you talk about these the, these questions of votes, Republicans, especially conservative Republicans, seem to look at a candidate to find the one thing they can support they really like about him. Democrats, on the other hand, look at their candidates and look for the one thing they can really hate about him, and that <laughs> causes both parties to go in very funny directions. All right. Well, guys, uh, thank you so much. I think Michael will re rejoin us in a second to sign off, but I, I just want to say how much I appreciated the conversation. I really learned a great deal from all three of you. So thank you. And again, my, my gratitude on behalf of the Institute for Human Ecology to all of the, those uh, who joined us tonight. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for moderating and thank my you pleasure. to our distinguished panel for ensuring that we are ending our run of uh, 50 odd events with a bang here. Um, and I'd invite um, all of our viewers uh, to join us again in the new year. We have some great programmings coming up. Um, so the best way to find out about our upcoming events is to sign up for our newsletter. And then once you do get those emails, I'd invite you to share those with your friends. Um, I'd also invite you to help support us today um, financially by donating at www.lumenchristi.org slash donate. A gift of any kind will go a long way. Um, and finally, I want to um, thank our co-sponsors, the Institute for Human Ecology and American Media for helping to ensure the success of tonight's event. Otherwise, on behalf of Lumen Christi, I wish all of you, our panelists and our viewers, a blessed Advent and a Merry Christmas. And we look forward to seeing you in the new year.